God's Word, beginning in chapter four, sorry, verse 46 of chapter 1 in Luke's Gospel, reads, And Mary said, My spirit magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Lord, would you use a song of praise to you from almost 2,000 years ago to stir in us songs of praise to you, that we might know you in a deeper and fuller way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may know that last year, Argentina won the Men's World Cup. A couple days later, the nation declared a federal holiday and had a celebration parade in Buenos Aires. Millions poured into the street, decked out in Argentina soccer uniforms and colors, and the team came down the street in an open-air bus. However, in wild enthusiasm, fans started getting a little, shall we say, crazy? One reporter wrote, people are falling on top of each other. They're climbing onto structures, streetlights, flagpoles, and they're collapsing. It's the definition of unsafe and it's dangerous. It's pure pandemonium. How do you control people's humanity when they're so blinded by euphoria? In fact, fans started trying to jump into the top of the player's bus and Helicopters came and lifted all of the players away to safety and to their final destination point for their celebration. Well, how do we respond to good news? Argentina celebrated their winning World Cup by mobs of adoring and euphoric fans. If such a reaction occurs to 11 men kicking a piece of leather on a rectangle, what should our response be that the King of Kings has come in the flesh. You know, how would Mary respond to being the one who is able to conceive the one that had been promised by the Holy Spirit for generations, for hundreds of years, for centuries and decades and millennia before this? You know, this wasn't how she planned her life. What Mary wanted with her life, we really don't know, but I'm sure public shame and the potential for divorce were not what she had picked out. However, we saw last week that she didn't respond with bitterness or anger. Rather, she stated, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. She then, as we saw, traveled to her cousin or relative, Elizabeth, for God had miraculously allowed Elizabeth to also conceive, even though Elizabeth was well beyond childbearing years. Then, though Mary showed no signs of pregnancy at that point, and though she wasn't even yet married, Elizabeth spontaneously burst into praise for what Mary had said when she heard Mary's voice. 
and through the inspiration of the Spirit, she then praised Mary. She praised the baby that was in Mary's womb, and then she rejoiced because the Lord had come to Mary. Now Mary responds, that's where we are today, with praise that has happened for everything that has happened so so far. And though God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men, she uses the language of a body to describe the praise for God. We'll see first in verses 46 through 49 that God's eyes look to the humble. Next in verses 50 through 53 that God's arm brings judgment and mercy. And lastly, verses 54 to 56, God's mind remembers his promises. But first, verses 46 through 49, we see that God's eye looks to the humble. And Mary begins this well-known song by saying, my soul magnifies or exalts the Lord. The Latin translation uses the word magnificat, and you may have heard of this as referred to as the magnificat, a magnification of praise to Mary's Lord and Master. And yet this magnification is not like a microscope. In school or maybe at home, you maybe get a tiny little slide and you put it underneath and supposedly you can make things look clear under there. I was never really good with that old microscope thing. But you can turn it and what's super tiny, you can make large. Well, that's not what Mary's doing. She's not making something that's really small look large. Rather, she's magnifying the way a telescope does. What does a telescope do? Well, a telescope is looking at something that is immensely large, but to our eye, it looks small. And we need to see it for what it is. And a telescope shines a little bit of the picture of what it really is. And Mary's prayer, her praise is reminding us of how grand God is. Like a telescope slightly improves how we see a star that is vast and huge. And Mary's prayer mirrors the words in Psalm 32. There it says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And Mary continues in verse 47 by declaring, My spirit rejoices and exalts upon God, my Savior. You know, for Mary, this is not just some distant worship. This is not just words she's heard before. This is not impersonal praise, for this is my Savior, she says, and she's worshiping from her spirit. You know, the true worship of God never exists only on our lips or our actions, but always springs from our spirit and hearts that adore God. Stephen Charnock wrote, without the heart, it is no worship. It is a stage play, an acting apart. We may be truly said to worship God though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship God if we lack sincerity. You you can come week in and week out and be here. You can sing all the words, but if your heart is not rejoicing in God, it is not true worship that is pleasing to God. And then in verse 48, Mary exalts for God looked on her though she was of low social standing. This is what the Old Testament tells us. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And when I think I'm big, I'm important, then God appears very small. 
And when we realize how God, great God is, then we recognize our smallness. Now notice I said smallness, not insignificance. We are unworthy of God's love, but we are not worthless. We are made in God's image. You know, and here, Mary begins her praise by looking up. You know, in contrast to recognizing that our worth, our meaning, our worship comes by looking up to God, our society starts their spiritual journey down the wrong path. We're told to search for ourselves, to find ourselves, to discover who we really are. However, the journey should not begin inward. Our journey of praise, our journey of spirituality must look upward. And the amazing truth is that as we begin to look up, we realize that God has already come down. You know, Christianity proclaims the amazing news that God came down. Thus, we don't need to look in, but we need to look up at Him. You know, Christianity, I'm not up here telling you, well, this is what you can do to reach up and find your way, how you'll get to heaven. Rather, it primarily focuses on God who came down to us in Christ. And when we realize that God is primary, our life takes proper shape. We see this next, for Mary declares that God who is mighty made her great, we're told in verse 49. But what is her greatness? It's that she gets to serve God. You're living to honor God is what made her life great, not living for herself. And the reason is because this is not any ordinary God, she says in verse 49. She ends verse 49, and holy is his name. He is set apart, distinct, and completely unlike anything else in the universe. And yet, though God is like that, notice how he is described in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I will dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know, that's what we just sang in O Holy Night, the second verse. We sang, Behold your king before him lowly bend. That is how we should approach. Just like Mary, so should we. And that's interesting because what picture comes to your mind when you think of Mary? If you go to a museum, you'll often see Mary and really shiny clothes, royal clothes, with a halo around her head, looking as probably someone in her 20s. And yet Mary was probably 12 to 14 years old. Maybe she just broke out with acne. Mary was an unholy sinner, just like everyone else. You know, though we wrongly depict Mary, she accurately saw herself in God, for she said, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary realized her sin and her need for a Savior. Children, preteens, teenagers, do you have a personal relationship with God? Not, well, my parents do, or not my friends do, or not this is how I'm raised, this is where my parents bring me. You know, is the baby in Mary's womb, the one who needed hands so that they could be pierced, who had a back so he could receive stripes? Who had a head so it would hold a crown of thorns? Is he your savior? Can you say he's 
my Savior? Have you trusted Him? And you might be asking, well, how do you have a relationship with God? And the first thing to realize is that He wants it. I've shared before that when I was in high school, I met this girl, thought she was attractive. So I gave her a call and said, hey, do you want to do anything Friday night? She said, no, she was busy. She had to study. No problem. What about next Friday? Still studying. I'm a patient young man. Well, what about three Fridays from now? Still studying. And I quickly realized she thought to be with someone like me, she really needs to study up. No, I quickly realized studying for three Friday nights in a row. Don't think she wants to be with me. You know, I wanted to get to know her, but she would do anything to not be with me, even study on a Friday night. And the good news is, that's not God. It's not like, well, God, we want a relationship with you. And he goes, no, I'm really not interested. You know, y'all are those sinful type, and I'm just, I don't want anything to do with you at all. No, God came down in Christ. He wants a relationship with you. You know, we don't have to wonder, does he want me? Does he love me? God desires for all people to know him. He wants a relationship with you now, whether you're four or 14 or 94. You know, don't buy Satan's lie that God and the Bible, you know, those are really kind of boring. So you need to kind of live your life. And then when you get older, that's when I'll get serious and I'll start that church thing. Oh, knowing God is infinitely better than anything. It's better than being popular, being the best athlete, dominating every video game, or having the coolest clothes and electronics. It would be like going to Six Flags. I don't really care for amusement parks, but if you do, going and then looking and going, oh, you see that four-year-old slide over there? It's three feet. Let's go do that all day. Like, well, there's these things that spin you and make you do all kinds of stuff that some people love. Why am I going to sit here on this? And yet, sadly, we as humans look at God and go, eh, that's not really that great. Hey, let's care about being popular. Let's care about how big a house we can have. Let's care about how popular we are. And that's writing the little four-year-old slide over and over. You can trust God today. He graciously welcomes all who humbly bow before him. You know, he loves us so much, he sent his son to restore our broken relationship due to our sin. And if you do, you can sing and rejoice as Mary did. Look again at verse 48. For Mary has an important phrase in there. In the middle, she says, for behold, from now on. You know, what's that saying? Well, things have been one way, but from this point, from now on, things are different. And Luke will use that phrase four more times in his gospel to talk about a dramatic change in people's life. He'll later use it to refer to the disciples when they come and from now on. You know, have you ever had that moment when you trusted Christ and then you could say, from now on. From now on, I am completely washed clean and forgiven of all my sins. From now on, God does not see me in my sin, but in the righteousness of of Christ. From now on, I am a child of God rather than a child of the devil. So friends, maybe for you that was decades ago. Maybe that was weeks ago. Or maybe by God's grace, it was seconds ago. But you can rejoice 
in the incarnate Son of God and trust in Him knowing that from now on you can be a cherished child of God by faith in Christ. Well, God shows His favor not just to Mary, though, but God's arm brings justice and mercy to all. That's what Mary rejoices in in verses 50 through 53, our second section. God's arm brings judgment and mercy. You see, Mary praises God for He has mercy to generation upon generation. His mercy was not merely for people in the past, but upon every single generation. And God's faithful character gives us hope, for He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, just as God showed mercy in the past, He's going to show mercy today and in the future. Yet he doesn't equally show mercy, for notice what Mary declares. See, He has shown mercy to those who fear Him. You know, the fear of God means living in reverence towards God and joyfully submitting to him it's not only fear in the sense of cowering in dread though we should have that if we haven't trusted in christ but rather the full orb fear that includes all respect and even love it's that healthy relationship with god that realizes he's not just my buddy or santa claus but he's the infinite sovereign ruler of the universe to whom i owe allegiance rather than god being there being like my butler to answer my prayers to make my life better, he's there for us to serve and honor him, to bow to him and realize that he gives me meaning, identity, and purpose. And God shows his mercy and also his judgment, we're told, by the strength of his arm. Thus Mary declares that God scattered the proud and brought down the mighty. I know some of you really like history. You read history books. You listen to podcasts. You read the news all the time. But those often are only discussing history horizontally from a human plane of events. This event or this action led to this and this and this. And yet Mary reminds us that though all those human events are important, they're secondary causes. God is the primary cause for why everything happens. His arm is mightier than all, and no one and nothing can stay his hand. And Psalm 2 tells of humans plotting against God, plotting a coup, and it says he responds by, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we think our plans invincible, our strength incomparable, our will unstoppable, and yet God laughs like Arnold Schwarzenegger being challenged by a toddler. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. Our will is nothing. God will bring down the proud. He'll raise up the lowly. And we see God humble the proud and mighty through the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. God warned Nebuchadnezzar of his pride and told him, if you don't turn, your fall will come. But Nebuchadnezzar did not listen. Then a year after the warning, it says in Daniel 4.30, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar is all about me, me, me. I built it by my power and for the glory of my majesty. You see, pride focuses our life, our thoughts. Everything is about me. Humility focuses our thoughts on God. And God responded to Nebuchadnezzar's pride 
by making him live and act like an animal. After a time, God restored Nebuchadnezzar, and then he said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Rather than it being about me, 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 Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed what Romans 11:36 says, For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Yeah, it's not just that God goes around and humbles the proud. We're also told that he lifts up the weak and lowly at the end of verse 52. You know, we don't always see this on earth. Sometimes the proud live in their pride to their death. And sometimes the lowly live in their lowliness to their death. But one day, God will make all things right. Flip over five chapters to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, this is Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or maybe the Sermon on the Plain. Some see these as distinct. They're similar messages. But here, Jesus is preaching, and notice what he says in Luke 6, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And Jesus continues, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. God is warning us that if you live for popularity, for pleasure and possessions now, that is all you will get. God will right every wrong. And though it's not wrong to have popularity, pleasure or possessions, making them your life's goal, making them your hope, making them what you think life is about is wrong and destructive. Mary here is reminding us that Jesus came to solve our spiritual problem of sin, but he didn't only come to fix that problem. Jesus came to fix all that is broken in this world, to conquer sin, death, and the devil. Thus, if you flip back to Luke 1 and verse 53, Mary continues that even the hungry will be filled with good things. And I think there's probably a double meaning here. I think first, it does mean he will fill the hungry physically, like Psalm 107 verse 9 declares, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Like when God provided manna for the Israelites as they're going through Egypt. Or as we saw in First and Second Kings when we looked through that, that God provided food for the widow of Zarephath, or food for Elijah when he was in the wilderness. And yet while God satisfies physical hunger, he has also satisfied our deeper hunger, spiritual hunger. Isaiah 55, 2-3 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. 
Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. Jesus himself said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus is giving this warning in Luke 6 that Mary is proclaiming ahead of time that God is going to bring down the mighty, the proud, and he's going to lift up the humble. And he's going to lift us up to have life abundantly, eternally, and with our hunger and thirst satisfied. And this reversal of what we often see drives us to ask, what is truly a successful life? God says it's a life devoted to him, even if it means being weak, being poor, being insignificant, being unpopular. One day, all of those things will go away. You know, one day, there was a man named Genghis Khan that everyone around them lived in fear of, or Stalin, or Hitler. And yet now, they're impotent. In contrast, those who are lowly, who no one knows about, one day, God will raise up. If they've trusted in Christ, they will reign with him. They are part of a kingdom that will never be shaken. You know, the problem is, we're duped. And we believe what is a lie and doubt what is true. Your sin does many things to us, but one of the things it does is it blinds us to what is truly great. We think that a rich life is having power, having possessions, having prestige. But God says in Proverbs 10:22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. It's his blessing that makes you wealthy. In Jeremiah 2 powerfully depicts the folly of sin by writing, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Many of you have gone hiking maybe up to the Wichita Mountains, or maybe you've gone farther up to Colorado or somewhere, and you're hiking, and you get after a long stretch, and you're just exhausted and thirsty. And imagine if you looked, and forget about Giardia and all those other things, and you see this beautiful waterfall flowing down. And you turn around, and behind you, you see water that's been sitting for weeks, that people have hiked through in their boots, and it's yuck and disgusting. Well, God says what we do is, We get to that point, we're on that mountain crest, we're thirsty, and we look at the waterfall and we go, ugh. And we turn around and see someone else stomp through the water puddle and we go, that looks great. And we bury our head in deep. You know, sin looks at God, the crystal blue waterfall, and says, yeah. And it looks at having everything on earth now and it goes, that's what I want. And it's a lie that is killing us. This is why Jeremiah 9, 23-24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Mary has focused her eyes on God's gaze and his arm 
unless she realized greatness was serving God and loving Him. And she now ends by praising His mind. This is the last three verses. Verses 54 through 56, our last section. God's mind remembers His promises. Because it says in verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Even in the midst of His punishment against Adam and Eve, God remembered mercy. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that one would come who would crush the serpent Satan, though the serpent would bruise his heel. This was God's initial promise, that God would send Jesus to redeem the world. Then, as Mary exalts God, clarify that promise would come through Abraham and his descendants after him. In Genesis 12, verses 2-3, God promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised that he would bless all the descendants of the earth through Abraham's seed, which was the one promised in Genesis 3.15. And then last week we saw that that promise then extended through King David's line, and this seed would be a king of the line of David, setting up an eternal kingdom. Thus, Mary sees God's faithfulness to his promises, and that this child that God gave her is the fulfillment of those promises. You know, Jesus is not plan B. He's not plan 2.0 or some later addendum that God had to work in because, oh, I was going to do this, but that messed me up. Jesus has been God's plan to redeem the world for all time. As you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it can be confusing to know how they relate. But here is one of the many places that we see the relationship as one of promise and fulfillment. In the Old Testament, promises are made. And in the New Testament, we see that promises are fulfilled. If you're like me, when I was a kid, your parents give you books and activities to do when you're on road trips. And one of the books they gave us was had these various activities. And they would have a page with all these numbers. And you're supposed to take, hopefully a pencil, because I always messed up, and go from number one to two, and two to three, and three to four, all the way till you got to the last number. And then when you got done, you could go, oh, it's a lion. I didn't know it. All the numbers gave you a picture. Well, in one sense, in the Old Testament, we're given the dots across the page. And in the New Testament, we connect all those dots, and we go, it's Jesus. That's what all of this was about. The Old Testament provides the structure, the outline for the picture, and when Jesus came, we saw how all those lines make sense in Him. And what an encouragement that God remembers and keeps His promises. You know, we've all planned a weekend activity or something to do, and yet something arises and we have to cancel the whole thing. You wish you could do it, but you just can't. Nothing has or ever will derail God's plans, His promises, from coming true. He does not change with popular opinion. He doesn't deviate due to new and improved ideas. You can build your life on the firm foundation of God's promises, for he keeps every single one. And in case you thought I had forgotten about Ephesians, this reminds us of the importance of the church. What? Well, just like God planned for Jesus to be known through Abraham, through David, through the people of Israel, so now... 
God has a plan for Jesus to be known through the church. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 3, 8 through 12, where it says to me, Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mysteries hidden for ages who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So God's plan for all eternity that came through the seed of Eve, through the seed of Abraham, through David, through Mary, is now continuing through Christ and through his church. You know, God wants to magnify his wisdom, himself, to the world. And not just to the world, Ephesians also said to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. And the plan he chose is the church. And the point is that while Mary's faith was personal, God my Savior, it was never private or just between her and God. Likewise, though we should all have a personal relationship with God, God's plan was never for you to just have just you and Him, not for your faith to be private. God's plan was that you would be part of a church, that the church was central to His plan to display Christ and his world wisdom. And so just as Mary rejoiced and joined in God's plan, so we rejoice and join in God's plan for us today. And remember something important. This wonderful prayer that we've just spent some time looking at, it came from a girl aged somewhere between 12 to 14. As a teenager and as adults, we always want to be normal. What is normal then? You know, a norm is a standard, a rule, a guide. And on one hand, is there a norm by which we all need to hear? No. And our culture loves that hand, that we're all unique. You love to wear plaid, and wear plaid. You love fried lima beans, eat fried lima beans. And our culture is all about being yourself. And yet there's another side of this, and that is, since we're all made by the same God, then we all have one norm. You know, often in trying to say that humans shouldn't allow others to dictate their life, we forget that God should dictate our life. And Mary here willingly, joyfully submits to God's plan for her life. And she sings a song of response, a song of praise that is saturated with Old Testament allusions and references. One pastor noted there are echoes from Hannah, which we read earlier in Mary's song, but not just from Hannah either quotes from or allusions to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And this was before Awana, Truth Trackers, Patch, Navigators, Memory System. This was before anyone had a personal Bible or a Bible on their phone or podcast. Yet Mary has her life steeped in God's Word so that it naturally flows out of her. You know, it doesn't say that she went and visited Elizabeth and then she went home and over the next eight months as she was considering what to do with her pregnancy, she wrote a hymn of praise. This spontaneously burst from her. You know, this most likely came from faithfully attending the synagogue and reciting scripture together as a family. And the point is that since she was so steeped in scripture, 
that she could realize what true greatness is and what was God considered to be normal. She could see that a life was worth living even though the cost would be high. Why? Because she had soaked her mind with God's word. So when the pressure of a hard situation came, the squeezing brought out what was already inside her. Her gaze was upon God, not upon her peers. What is your gaze focused on? Is it improved health, better grades, how to earn more money? Sadly, what many people focus their life on is destroying them. Eugene Twinge is a social scientist who's noted many times that since the rise of teenagers having smartphones, the rates of depression and suicide for that group have skyrocketed. In fact, for teens, male suicides have doubled and female suicides have increased threefold. And why do they think that's happening? Well, it's because teens are focusing their gaze horizontally. They focus on the next tweet, the next Instagram, or whatever social media activity their peers use, and their life is nothing compared to what I see. I'm not condemning social media or smartphones, but rather want us to reflect, what is my gaze focused on? Am I more concerned about God or my peers? Am I focused on what's temporal or what's eternal? You know, friends, Mary reminds us that the greatest good in life is not being popular, it's not being the best athlete, it's not being the top scholar, having the greatest meals or experiences or the cutest kids or the best house or anything else that we so often say that's what's so important. You know, Mary is reminding us, don't settle for what's ordinary when eternal greatness is available to you. You know, pray that God would open your eyes to see what is truly great and wonderful, to see past the lies of this world and appear and gaze at the one who is of infinite worth. You know, Mary's gaze was on God and his word so that when this child come, came, she didn't throw a pity party and go, well, why me? She didn't become bitter and depressed. Well, why is my life like this? No, she trusted in God. She praised God and she looked in hope to him and his promises. And so, like her, may we say that my soul magnifies the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, for you have the words of eternal life. Lord, I know various situations in here, and maybe many of us have not been given a child we didn't want, but maybe we have health issues, or a relationship, or finances, or other things that we would never have picked for our life. And yet, Lord, would you help us to trust you in those? Would our soul magnify you, even in the difficulties, knowing that just as you had a plan that you were working in Christ, you have a plan for each thing you bring into our life. So Lord, would we live in the fear of you, rejoicing in you and all that you've done for us through your incarnate Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.